0: tell me when to give the cue. Welcome to Capital Club Radio Show here in Atlanta. I'm Michael Flock, CEO of Flock Specialty Finance. Today, we're honored, delighted to have a friend of mine and veteran of the debt buying industry, Lou DePalma. Lou is the managing director of Garnett and co-founder, along with Robin Ishmael and Sean McBody. The team founded Garnett in 2004. It's a brokerage business, in fact, one of the largest brokerage businesses in our industry. They are at the nerve center of everything. They are the nerve center of hundreds of transactions every year with buyers and sellers, big and large. I spoke with Lou in 2017 in Las Vegas, one of the uh, RMA conferences. And you know today, a lot has changed since 2017. And Lou, we'd like to get your perspective on the market. It, all of this changes, the challenge of COVID, the obstacles and opportunities that face the debt buying world today from both a seller and a debt buyer perspective. But before we go into the macro view and the macro discussion about what has changed, you know, I'd like to know what's changed at Garnett? Is it the same? Have you pretty much stayed with the same strategy, the same people, the same processes? Or has something else changed? In fact, you know, one of my favorite expressions, one of my favorite French expressions is, the more things change, the more they stay with the same. Lou, what's changed at Garnett?
1: Michael, a lot has changed. And thank you for inviting me. And I'm pleased to be on this show with you again. 2017, although it was four years ago, seems like it was 40 years ago. March of this year seems like it was four years ago. And it seems like that was a long time ago when we were all together doing deals, when the first week in March, we all had to split up overnight and work from home. That was uh, Rob and my partner, made the decision, uh, and I think it was a very well-founded decision, on a Friday night that nobody was to show up to work Monday, and we would be working remotely as a cohesive unit. Luckily, we had lots of, uh, what Robin did was had lots of practices over the 14 years. So we even had pandemic drills. Our last one was in January, just before the pandemic, where Robin would send everybody an email and say, you are working from home tomorrow. Let me know what problems you have. We had no issues moving from everybody in the office to everybody being remote. There were some minor technical issues. What we did was uh, everybody's desk phone had to be packaged up, sent to their home so they could uh, connect to the internet and we could all be on the same VoIP system. But other than that, it was very little, um, you know, very little internal, the external was different. The world changed in March of 2020.
0: So does this mean that long-term you're, you're gonna continue working at home or is the team gonna get back to the office once the uh, COVID crisis has ended?
1: You know, that's, we talk about that a lot. We're not going to be in the office anytime soon. We need something to be resolved uh, with the virus. But when you think about it, we were in Manhattan during the World Trade Center, when after that, getting on an airplane was different. Everybody said, I'm not going to fly for business anymore. Then everybody flew for business. I'm not going to work in a skyscraper anymore. You might as well build them out of cardboard, because no one will work in a skyscraper. Well, the amount of skyscrapers being built in all the cities has just been through the roof. So... Like you said, the more things change, the more they remain the same. So I, we will be together again, I just don't know why. But I do miss everybody.
0: So how about Garnett's position in the industry? How has that changed or has it stayed the same? I remember Lou, you've said to me in the past, you need to stay alive, stay current. That's a big piece of the Garnett culture and your vision of how to succeed in this industry. Is that the same or is that changing too?
1: We think we have to stay ahead of the curve. So we think we have to change before the market changes. So what that was that meant remote We were ready for remote and we were operating on remote much better than the banks or the finance companies that we work with. So we were able to keep deals together that otherwise might have fallen apart and In March, the world fell apart and everybody was on pins and needles and many deals fell out of bed, but our sales team got on the phone, reassured clients, talked to people about pricing and the market quickly came back in May and June and it's now pretty robust and we can talk about it's not just robust in the charge-off world. In the performing world, the ABS market came back. The mortgage market came back. Fannie Mae has a $2 billion non-performing mortgage, non-performing and re-performing mortgage deal on the market right now. That will trade to somewhere around a 4% yield. That's a pretty low yield for non-performing assets.
0: How about the effect of interest on on your Interest rates. Interest rates.
1: So when we were in 2017, it was a low interest rate environment and a benign credit environment. That's kind of the worst environment for a, a small firm, brokerage firm like Garnet. We like dissension, we like changes, we like things going up and down when people have to do trades. So we were doing a lot of smaller deals, performing deals. There wasn't really much distress in the market. People were predicting an economic an economic turn turn down. It just didn't happen, and it just the economy just kept improving until COVID. And the 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 uh, what we what we dealt with since 2017 was Cecil, right, which is Uh, an accounting change, current and expected cumulative losses, which has encouraged people or encouraged or accounting-wise made people want to trade more performing mortgages. So we do either performing mortgages or credit cards or auto loans. So that has increased our performing business. And the, um, the interest rate environment made many assets that were underwater now sell for par or better. And then the other thing that happened since 2017 was fintech. So fintech is not only the way the world was going, but because of COVID, it's going in that direction more quickly. So those are the four changes, Cecil interest rates, fintech, and COVID.
0: You know, in the past, Lou, you've talked to me about the journey, Garnett's journey, the Garnett process. Uh, Is that any different now than it was three years ago, or has that stayed the same?
1: I think, when I think about the journey, I think about the journey that the clients take. And then I also think about the journey that my employees take. So we're, we're small, we're 25 people and we're a tight knit, really a family. Many of us, many of the employees have been there over 10 years. So very little change in the last 10 years. And then I think about you know, their daily life and then a client, a seller, when they come into the market, what do they need to know? What do they need to know about price? They all want to know about pricing, but it has to do with regulations. It has to do with data integrity and it has to do with data security to even get to the market and the purchase and sale agreement. And then I need to have buyers that have trust in the process and that can easily and quickly discern if they're interested. And then if they are interested to do the more deep dive required to price and purchase assets.
0: And so, how do you build that trust? Is it people? Is it just this process? Um, is it experience? You build
1: trust. That's a good question. You you don't build it; you earn it, right? So I don't actually do anything to build trust. I just try to do the right thing every day for every client on both the buy side and the sell side and I I think over the 14 or 16 years of Garnet and the 15 years before that, that that's been a pretty successful, you know, process.
0: So it sounds like kind of what underpins all this is relationships. It seems like it's kind of ironic because brokers are all about transactions but you speak about relationships, the journey and the process. Um, how many sellers and buyers do you have today that you had, let's say back in 17 uh, and even before? You know, what kind of turnover do you have with those relationships?
1: That's, that's a very good question. We had a lot of turnover because we are a spot market business you know, some of the first deals I did, the clients would say, that was terrific. Thank you for helping with me with a problem. I hope I never do another deal like that again. I don't want to have that problem again. So the relationships are still there. But that person, when they find out somebody else that has a problem, I'll get that referral. So it's, and people, change firms. So when they change firms, we often make a new client when someone goes there. But because it's such a spot market business, and not everybody sells loans every day, that we have to have a lot of clients. I mean, we we cast a very wide net, talk to a lot of people. We go to 30 or 40 conferences a year and take uh, about she I don't have that number in front of me, but several hundred personal client visits a year up until March of 2020.
0: I think you also told me, <clears throat> related to all this, about a story about how you started at Bear Stearns, how you got all this started from that point. So we were at it as a mid-sized
1: investment bank. Uh, we were advising banks on, and specialty finance companies and taking them public. And we were getting more and more into the distressed business and the charge-off business, which had always been a business for us, which the bank, the investment bank was not a fan of. And I, and I agree with them. They, my boss said, the chairman of the firm, I love the charge-off business, Lou, but I love it as a private business. It's tough to be public because of repeated and regular earnings. Now, PRA and Encore have solved for that and the market has solved for that by the large issuers selling flow on a regular basis. That did not exist when we started Garnet Capital. And so, uh, Sean and Robin and I you know, met in a diner uh, at a table and planned out Garnet Capital. And you know, we had very good relations with our bank, so we resigned and then started working on the plans. I mean, that was a couple of days. And then we were sitting at the beach, you know, talking about what lawyer do we use, what accounting firm, you know, what name, what Delaware name. And so Robin and I were <laughs> sitting on the beach, and Robin, who really is the nuts and bolts planner of the firm, said, I'll write a plan and make time and responsibility for everybody. Sean said, I can't do that, I'm going to Europe. So Sean took off for 10 days or whatever to go to Europe and that's when we met with the lawyers and, and did a lot of the spade work. Sean's a brilliant mind and figures out the deals that nobody else can figure out, but will not do it to a time and responsibility schedule. So as soon as that came to pass, he was out and then when we got you know the the nuts and bolts set up, he came back in and actually clients flocked to him and, and fought to be who could be Garnet Capital's first deal.
0: And that was in two thousand And we
1: actually told three or four clients they were the first so we could make a little money and pay our bills.
0: That was in two thousand four. Is that when this that came? was
1: September of 2004. We were actually profitable by year end, in, in, okay. despite the... When we sat in the Bear Stearns building, we were backed by uh, Bear Stearns Merchant Bank. Okay. And uh, that was a lot of fun.
0: Actually, I think that's right around the time I met you.
1: That's where we met with David King.
0: David King, he's now at Fortress. Right. Um. So when you founded the company, Uh, who did you think was your customer? Is it really the seller or is it the buyer? What was your concept? How did you conceive of these relationships then? Which one's more important?
1: Neither is, well, the seller pays us. So we can come from a Wall Street background, an SEC background, where you have a fiduciary obligation to one side or the other. There's been an increasing... uh, mode where people get paid by the buyer and the seller, which or get paid by the buyer, which I think is antithetical to what this process is or should be. So we get paid by the seller, but we rely on the good graces of the buyer. So I, I think both have to have a good journey through the, the debt sale process. And we envisioned it to be uh, distressed debt, but in fact, at Garnet, we probably do in purchase price much more performing debt. We are, you know, closing a uh, nine-figure purchase price deal, you know, uh, close to a billion dollars of uh, performing loans uh, currently.
0: So what percentage of today that, uh, that you uh, support performing versus charged off?
1: Oh, many fewer performing deals, but purchase price a lot higher. So you, you, when you think about it, we just did the DeVille deal, which is public, right? Six billion dollars of notional amount. So that sounds like a big deal. But the purchase price was pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not not anywhere near what 100 million or 300 million um Performing
0: portfolio itself. Were. So initially, we talked about then as you built this company, there are buyers and there are sellers. Over the years, though, we know that relationships in this transaction process that you manage have changed a little bit, right? You have now compliance for people. How close do you work with them when you are about to sell a portfolio on behalf of a seller? Do you have to work with the compliance folks or is that the responsibility of the seller?
1: I spend over a million dollars a year for a small company on compliance. When we have people that just respond to compliance requests, mostly from sellers but sometimes from buyers too who want to know, know that our data security is okay to even send them data. Uh, We were way out in front on data security and also CFPB uh, compliance.
0: Yeah, so I imagine that, you know, you do reps and warranties, as does the seller. And so these relationships, and I guess with the compliance experts, are critical to to the integrity of the files that you're selling, as well as to your own... um, expertise and position in managing these transactions, is that right? And
1: reputation,
0: yeah, right? reputation, right? So we want to make sure that
1: the seller understands what the market is for their product, that they understand what they have to do before the sale, during the sale, and after the sale. And we want the buyer to have a clear understanding of what they're getting and then, and you know, what the options are for collection. And then also what the contract says for representations as what's in the file. We're very careful about that.
0: Would be things. helpful, I think, for our viewers today. Is do you have some stories about <clears throat> purchases that blew up, whether it's compliance or misunderstanding on price, or you know changes in projections on liquidation curves? Do you have some examples? Of deals that fell apart that, that we could learn from.
1: That's painful. <laughs> so that's, that's like so, so telling a painful story hurts. But uh, recently, now, so just pre-COVID, uh, we were working with one of the top banks who had a line of credit to a subprime auto company, and they wanted us to sell roughly a hundred million loan portfolio and that's our business we did the pre-sale analysis we said here's what the price is Uh, the bank went to the bank group the secured creditors okay that's the uh, that's the price we held an auction we got in that price range for the auction and at the 11th hour unsecured creditors to the company came and objected to the sale and then tried to hold up the sale for you know several million dollars settlement and away from us the negotiations and totally out of our control it went from a big number to a small number in the middle number and then finally the secured creditors just the unsecured creditors who had no basis on this portfolio squashed the sale where they could have received several million dollars in our sale ended up on the portfolio liquidation over time getting zero and we did six months worth of work for you know for no fee and that was uh, the opportunity cost for us was a lot for a small firm when you drop things to do a trade, a complicated trade that doesn't that doesn't close.
0: So you spent all that time, all that resource, and you didn't make anything. Is that right?
1: Yeah, uh, whatever the you know there's there was expenses, and I don't think there was a breakup fee. You know, some not anywhere near the opportunity cost.
0: So what was the lesson learned from that tough experience?
1: We talk about getting breakup fees, but I think they get in the way. Uh, the next deal we did, the next two deals we did uh, with the similar situation where it was a bankruptcy, where the courts were involved. We made sure that the, and, and both I think were public, Laser Spine and DeVille, we made sure that the, the court, was okay with the price and that the judges would approve the sale. To the extent we could, the the next two sales went fine. But that doesn't hurt the pain of not closing a deal. It happens rarely to us.
0: So are you saying essentially that you could have prepared better for this sale? I don't done. think
1: so. I don't think so. We we rerun that many times, as difficult as it is to rerun a failure, and we probably would have done the same thing. You cannot predict bad faith, and and that's just what happened. And I, you know, I prefer to rely on good faith. My career has been blessed with mostly good faith. There's the few instances where things have gone wrong, but I'll, I'll, I'll hang my hat on good faith.
0: So another relationship we haven't touched upon, Lou, is your relationship with lenders, capital providers like us and others. How has that evolved over the years and how important is that to you? Uh, it's been, so it's been very important,
1: right? because the lenders pull the strings, and for the larger lenders, I would say they're a source of business for us also. So they will buy portfolios from us, and then when one of their uh, companies wants to sell loans, we will get referrals. And in fact, when we started Garnet, two of the four deals we started with came from lenders who needed to liquidate positions? So we get a fair amount of business from warehouse lines and, and lenders who, you know, just have some stuff that is tail ends or you know unwanted pieces.
0: So then, I guess up front, when you're preparing for a sale, then you also have to check due due diligence on the lenders of the buyers. Then, right? Is that? We
1: know from experience, we do ask the question, do you, is, do you have, do you need financing, is the financing approved? And we ask that, and to the extent that's answered honestly, we take care of that, uh, and I, that hasn't been a problem for us historically. Uh, From time to time, someone gets uh, turned down in committee and we have a backup bit. Mm -hmm.
0: So I guess then a lot of this is the same. A lot of it has not changed. Although I think there's one thing we haven't talked about related to compliance. It was data security. I mean, would you lump that into compliance or is that something specific that you focus on separately given the new kind of regulations that have evolved since the creation of the CFPB?
1: That's just a gating issue. If you don't have uh, SOC 2, uh, PCI, all all the credentials for data security, then the bank won't even speak to you. To, To get approved, to receive information from a bank these days, at a minimum is three months, and for a major bank could be a year, and that's, that's a, a real roadblock uh, to entrance into the business.
0: Okay, so let's move on to the big question. You know, right now we're all consumed by the pandemic, this uh, Black Swan event, once-in-a-century event that we call COVID now. Um, what impact has this had on the debt-buying industry impact on the sellers that drive the volumes. What, in your mind, what what are some of the top three, two or three things that have really impacted and changed or, you know, turned over in this business as a result of the pandemic?
1: We've seen a whipsaw of change. So March and April, fear ruled, markets. Prices dropped dramatically. We we tracked pricing and deals fell out of bed. People that deals that were in closing got repriced. Luckily our flow deals, we kept them all intact and that kept the firm open and the salespeople got on the phone reassured buyers reassured, uh, reassured sellers talk to people about they want, what they wanted to do. And what happened in March and April is, a lot of money was raised to invest in distressed debt. Then, in May, whenever the stimulus money started to kick in, and I guess that was even in March, eventually what we saw from across the board, and this is in the public's and in the private debt buyers, March, April, May, June, July, collections did not go down. In fact, those were record months in collections. The obvious reasons, stimulus money, people had money. So if they lost their job, they had a replacement to that income and in many instances, greater income. They were spending less. They weren't going out to dinner. They weren't traveling. They weren't going back and forth to work They weren't going over bridges. So they they, they had more disposable income and see they were home So if you were calling them and saying do you want to take care of this debt? They have excess income There was the you know the moral suasion to start to take care of the past debts And we saw that uh, across the board in all products uh, performing loans, prices dropped dramatically for six to eight weeks. Uh, fear turned to opportunity in May and June. Prices started to come back and now pricing for reperforming mortgages, distressed mortgages, non-performing mortgages are back. The housing market is screaming. Auto prices, and used car prices are very high. So, um, you know, we'll see now that the stimulus has run out with the future brands.
0: So that's interesting because we saw the same things at Flock, that March and April were months where, indeed, we thought we we're immediately going to be in a recession. We did see prices come down more volume. And then all of a sudden, things leveled out. So I guess the next question, which we can talk about in a few minutes is, you know, what's the outlook um, for the economy, but um, Okay, so one other thing though in terms and you've touched on this too, the other impact of COVID was on how we collect and You know collections at home, the productivity, you said your people worked at home, but what about, you know, collection agencies that collect for the debt buyers, your customers, what What have you seen there and is this a new business model that uh, can change the industry as well?
1: I think so. I think you can collect from home. The compliance uh, is built into the laptops that people took home. They were the voice recognition and the language recognition. I don't know how all that works, but compliance seemed to be okay. There were fewer collectors that were, able to take care of the technology had the internet capabilities, but it still seemed like, you know, the collections were fine. And people are now coming back to the office from what I hear.
0: So do you view this as an opportunity then for agencies to reduce the cost? And that gives the debt buyers that guess more opportunity to pay a higher price because their collection services uh, fees are lower.
1: I I, I don't know. I, I think I think the overarching factors are the leverage available to buy debt, the low cost of that leverage. Re- interest rates are very low right now. Also, the um, the supply and demand issue when you think about. The deferments that people had, three month, six month payment deferments, that has depressed the amount of charge offs available. At first, the major issuers sold less because pricing dropped dramatically, and then charge offs dropped. So there are fewer loans in the market to buy. And we are seeing that, we are getting more interest on our small sales uh,
0: than we usually get. Well, so do we at uh, Flock Specialty Finance. Now, let's look at this a chart that we've developed, and I think you and I talked about it earlier, um, about volumes of deployments. I think you can see here, um, and this, these are the results of Encore and PRA and actually Square 2 uh, since 2013. And if you compare, if you look at you know, the second quarter uh, that, that bar on the right, the second quarter of this year, it's the lowest since the fourth quarter of 2013. So it's fascinating that, you know, when we entered March and April with COVID, I think all of us assumed recession. That means it's actually a good time because uh, we're a counter cyclical business, but you know the the sales or the volumes plummeted uh, this quarter, and I think it's exactly what what you've said is that there's deferments, um, there are you know all the stimulus payments. I think the unemployment has kind of I think it's stabilized now. I, you know people are still out of work, but I think that the, the again all the government support has changed the the dynamic there, and we're also seeing like you mentioned that the volumes of, of debtors, the volumes of accounts per portfolio have declined rapidly. So we are seeing the same exact trend, I think, that you see it, at, at Garnett. So are you
1: seeing in your flows that the monthly flow volume has declined?
0: Absolutely. And what we're also seeing is the way sellers are pricing it, you know, in the past, it's almost... Usually, it's it's the same price for six months or twelve months. But now we're seeing more negotiations where sellers will say, "Okay, it's this price, you know, for three months, and then we'll revisit it." So there's much more uh, optionality, I think, built into the uh, terms of these flows than, than ever before. So I yeah, we're on the other side of that. You're selling. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, we are. We so
1: because of Cecil, because of uncertainty, we are doing very, uh, very few, if any, under a year. In fact, some are extended over a year.
0: Well, again, we see the same thing. Now, Lou, I'd like you to comment on some of the verticals that, uh, you know, you're very familiar with at Garnett, because you, you know, obviously are brokering these, these portfolio sales. So let's look at this chart now on uh, credit card pricing, and how it has changed in the past and you can see, how, you know, what how so, changed just in the last year or two.
1: This is interesting because this, the first chart you had was John Wheeler's chart, your, your guide uh, that talking about volume and looking at that and this, there's a, a high correlation and the sharp dip and then rise at, uh, on the right is first and second quarter of, of this year. And so what you're seeing here is fresh credit card pricing. Price dropped dramatically first quarter, March, because of uncertainty. Price came back and it's, if I had, we talked this morning about extending that line after the second quarter. Price has come back, not maybe to where it was, but pretty close. And that's because of the previous slide that John Wheeler did that shows volume is down. So people have to deploy money and a lot of money has been raised for this sector. So it's a supply and demand issue. Also, to go to the next slide, there's an increased interest in other types of loans. One of the other types of loans, private student loans. Now, student loan, in the United States, you, you read about it in the headlines, it's a 1.5, 1.3 trillion dollar issue. Most of that is federal government debt, but roughly 200 billion is private debt, which is gap funding, when usually for the better schools, and a small, much smaller amount of that charges off in the federal loans, but that is a source where people are looking because Other than some of the other smaller balance loans, these loans have a very long and steady collection curve. So you can collect these loans, you can collect more from these loans over a longer period of time. And that's attractive as a, you know as a heat sink
0: to some of the other products uh next slide is what did we I have a little question though first on uh, on, on student loans that's a pretty controversial segment right a couple reasons i guess one is uh the government even though we're talking about private student loans here what what impact does the public student loan market have on the private student loan or isn't there one is it totally separate
1: there are some relations, but the the big difference between the government student loans and the private student loans is ability to repay and need. In the public market for many years, and the Department of Ed is cracking down on that, anybody who had an education license, there were for-profit schools, and much of that debt is for-profit schools even four year schools where people would get a degree for a large amount of money that did not qualify them or train them for any kind of job. So they had a lot of debt for not a lot of upside. If you're talking regular not-for-profit four year schools, they all talk about their employment rates and their average salaries two years, five years out. That's where the private market sits and if you look at the default rates for the private market it's de minimis it's it's pretty low but you know because it's such a big market there still are um, enough volume to purchase and work out so the big difference is uh quality
0: quality of the loan or quality of the right. collateral or quality of the borrower. I mean,
1: in the federal programs, uh, you can support yourself on federal student loans by continuing to go to school rather than pay the loans back. So there are, and you'll read about that in the New York Times. Somebody who has You know a hundred thousand or several hundred thousand of student loans because they have five degrees but they're a librarian right so it's you'll never you know be able to pay that back
0: so you said quality of the borrower and that that's another kind of controversial point i think in the industry when it comes to underwriting the purchase of student loans because i think many People or debt buyers that are successful in other asset classes, let's say like credit card, assume that some of the basics of underwriting, you know, some of the same models can apply to student loans. On the other hand, the people, the buyers that have been successful, say, no, absolutely not. It's a very different. It's a very totally different, different. model. Can you, just, can you comment? Right. On right.
1: In the federal program, there is no underwriting, so it's. I'm enrolling in this school, you give me the money. In the private, there's you still do get credit scores, and it's a very high percentage of co-borrowers. And if you're going to get a, co, a credit-worthy co-borrower to co-sign your loan, uh, they're going to want to know that you're actually going to a real school and have a chance at getting a real job. So that, that's a big difference. But it's a it's not a two-year payback cycle. It is a much, long, you have to wait, just think, it's many, you know, these are people who decided to go to college and may or may not have graduated. So they have some college education, but may or may not have a degree and may take them a while to get back on their feet. And the tech buyers are very good at working with that population. or. The debt buyers that should be buying this are very good and patient to work with that population. But if you look at the publics, their collection curves are out there 60 to 90 months, right? You see that.
0: Yeah, you have to have real patient capital for that, obviously. So let's look at the auto segment. And what's your outlook for that, Lou? I I can see. Uh, So
1: auto is another market where there's over a trillion dollars of debt. And these graphs just show that uh, volume increases and also charge-offs increase. And that is a source of business for the debt buyer. So what we've seen is interest in the, the student loan and the auto loan market as fill-ins for the decrease in volume in the credit card market and i also think that there's a at least with the millennials there's an increasing distaste for using credit cards i have you know millennial sons do not use a credit card they use other fintech financial products to pay their bills and uh you know, never run a balance. So, I think that's, that's it for slides, right? Yeah.
0: So is this a good time to invest in these segments? How would you counsel investors or, you know, funds uh, that work with lenders like us? How would you counsel them about getting into these markets, these verticals today? Because, you know, on the one hand, we saw you know, at least for March and April, you know, the volume supply go up, prices go down. Now it looks like everything's leveled off. And in fact, you know, with last quarter with deployments being down, you know, we might anticipate prices going up. So what would you advise, you know, capital sources today, investors, about not just these three verticals, but I I guess overall, is this a good time to jump in? It's a
1: good time to jump. Prices are high right now. And I think they'll remain high short term. And that'll be a supply and demand. Then we will see the results of the deferrals. And if you think, I, I talk to people in banks every day, the hot job in banking today is special assets and collections the banks are hiring special assets and collections people as fast as they can get them in the door. So, you know, when the hot job is compliance and special assets, that tells you something about banking. And when the the deferments end and these loans get back on the books, there will be a need to really, it's inventory management. To work on the accounts where you can work them out, and sell the accounts that cannot be worked out. And, and, and I'm speaking now in special assets for commercial. That's that's in credit card is different, and in consumer loans, it's, it hits 180 days and it's charged off.
0: So for the last, you know, 10 minutes or so, we've talked about impact of COVID. Now the other hot topic, of course, and you touched on it earlier is fintech. So we've seen obviously lots of activity there, lots of sellers uh, that dominate the space. What, what, do you, what is the outlook for volumes? I know it all went down in the last quarter, but do you see, A, do you see the volumes picking up again in fintech? And how is that business model changing? Cause we know uh, one or two cases where they're merging with banks. Um, so is this, is this really a short term, um, in, 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 industry, is it going to go away just as, as, fast as it was created? When we sat down in
1: 2017, I remember saying this because I was sure I would be right that the You're ultimate, yeah, <laughs> sometimes right, sometimes wrong, never a doubt, uh, the ultimate exit for fintechs would be to be bought by banks. What I did not, and that's happened, right? Cabbage was bought by Amex, and there were some others that were. What I did not see was the fintechs becoming or buying a bank. And Lending Club bought a bank, Radius, Uh there are money got a bank charter, and there's another one. So, so there's there's several of them that are actually becoming banks and embracing the regulatory environment of a bank, and really, that's crushing to a fintech. But the carrot is access to low-cost funds in the Fed window, so it's worth it for them. I think that's the smarter avenue for them because then they are able to control their own destiny. But um, that is a, a point that I did not foresee when we sat down in 2017. It's interesting. I think the way of the world is digital. It's just easier. Uh, you know, uh, you know, My son is 30 years old and or 29 years old i better not get that wrong uh bought his first place wrote his first check to buy that place and had he said i had never seen a paper check and he had to go to the bank a branch he said i'd never been to a bank branch i had to go get a paper check and bring it to this lawyer's office to you know close on a on a property That's where the future is. They just, they just don't want paper. If it doesn't work on the phone, it's not in his reality.
0: So if these fintech companies, though, maybe, you know, I don't know if evaporates the right word, but certainly merging with banks uh, going away, is this really a good time for investors to invest in fintech? whether it's well, so is investing in fintech forming is, is this a very risky segment?
1: So do you mean in investing equity in a platform or do you mean investing in the charge-offs that they
0: originate Well good question I think you could look at it either way so why both a platform and then also as a debt bar
1: I, I think that in, in the platforms, There's many, many platforms trying to do the same thing. You have to find one that differentiates itself or does it better, just like in brokers. I mean, you know, um, in the charge-offs, I think the loans are the loans. Once you make a loan, it's all, what was your underwriting? What was your collections? What is the ability of this person to repay over time? So I, I, I think once a loan is made, it's kind of, Sits outside of the, the equity part of a fintech.
0: So, I guess the common denominator through all these, uh, for the last uh, what fifty minutes we've been talking here, Lou, is uncertainty, uncertainty and credit and collections and you know auto sales, student loans, uh, you name it. Well, so,
1: uncertainty in, in in all the markets. I mean. Look at the stock market right up today down tomorrow up tomorrow down today it's very volatile these days i think that's also reflected in the the charged off debt market and that's the market you and i are, are speaking about but i do think that the underpinning of the american economy is very strong we still sell high fico high performing low loss portfolios that continue to have low losses, even in a pandemic, because unemployment went from 16% to 7 or 8% today. It means 92% of the employable people still have jobs. The economy still needs to get rolling. It will come back. There will be eventually a response, a vaccine or a, you know, the COVID will be solved and the American economy will come back. I don't know when, but, uh, you know, I still think that the basic structure of the economy is sound.
0: So it sounds like, you know, where we started was one of your kind of your words of wisdom or guidance for your customers or your sellers would be stay alive and stay current. Is that right? Stay alive, Correct. Stay current. So try to stay ahead of the curve. Yeah. And so what's interesting here is we've spent nearly an hour on all these changes. I get I think back to that that famous French expression. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And so whether it's 2017 or 2004 when you started Garnett, you know, stay alive and stay current. Sounds like, you know, that's sort of the motto of the culture that has driven you to such, such success that, you, you know, that you've enjoyed in this industry. So I, I applaud you for that. Before we sign off though, I have to ask you another question. Um, you know, it's on everybody's mind, I think, uh, last night. You know, what impact will the presidential election have, I guess certainly on our economy, and then will there be any impact on the credit collections and debt buying or debt selling industries?
1: You know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't get into politics. My wife and I taped the debate because we said we we sure we couldn't sleep if we watched it. <laughs> so we'll watch it, you know, over a weekend or something. But it will have a major effect. I just don't know what that effect will be.
0: So uh, a major effect that could be what, one, an extreme or another, or do you think there's a middle road here somewhere or?
1: Uh, You know, uh, I hope America takes the middle road because that's the best road for America. But I, I, you know, we're a small company, we're scrappy and we will, uh, as you will, and as the debt buying industry will, we will adjust to whatever, environment is thrown at us. And and I think the parallel to that is the financial crisis of 2008, you know, 2009 and 10 were a period of crushing regulation. And I think the debt buying industry emerged from that much stronger and much better for what we thought would be regulatory changes to crush the industry actually made it stronger.
0: So I guess uh, we are going to wrap this up today on, I guess, the words of wisdom from Lou De Palma. Stay alive and stay current. Thanks, Lou. I appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure
1: to spend some time with you and the listeners. Okay,
0: That was an hour? Yeah. Wow. 54 minutes 54. we got six more minutes.